Good morning. We'll turn to John chapter 3. We'll be in a very familiar passage this morning. We're going to be looking at John 3.16 through 21. As Jesus continues his interaction with the Pharisee Nicodemus. And as we pray, we'll pray that God would open our hearts and minds to hear his word. And particularly from a, a verse that we quoted since we were three going to BBS. I think it's good for us to ask the Lord for new eyes and new insight in this verse. So let's do that as we come to him and pray. Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, literally your words here spoken in the Gospel of John, these are words that we have recited even as unbelievers. We knew these words. And so I pray that you would help us to see them with new eyes, with a new heart. Even, Lord, to help us to see our sin as we read these familiar words, that we might be convicted of it. Lord, lead us to the truth as we come to your word. It is the only truth in a world of untruth, and it is the only way to eternal life. So lead us there. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of the strangest places that I've ever had a theological debate was while I was playing first base. Um, I know that sounds odd. Some of you guys know me well. You know that I do. I never shy away from a theological discussion. And so I'm playing first base. This is church league softball. We were in Maryland, and I was a past our youth pastor of a church there. And we were a Presbyterian church, and um, this was another church that wasn't Presbyterian and not a Reformed church. And the guy comes to first base, and there was an injury during the play, so we had quite a bit of time. And so he uh, begins asking me questions uh, concerning the atonement and the extent of the atonement, the nature of the atonement, because he knew that I was Reformed and he knew that he wasn't. And he wanted to argue about these things. And then he didn't realize that he was going to get into an argument with one of the pastors of the church. And so he got a little bit more than I think he bargained for. And once he realized that was what was happening, he just said something like, well, I don't need any of that theology business. Just give me John 3.16, and that's all I need. And he was done. That was it. Well, I've heard that a lot, actually. This just give me John 3.16. That's all I need. And that's, that's good. It is a verse of Scripture that talks about our salvation and is a real succinct way to do that. But the problem with that is that John 3.16 is one of the most quoted verses in Scripture. And what's the problem with that? Well, along with that, it's often one of the most misunderstood verses in Scripture. Because people will use it to justify everything from condoning sin because God is love and God can't hate anything to God died to save everyone, so everyone is saved. And the list goes on and on. And so these are both horrible examples of theology and strong impositions on the text. And so we're going to look at John 3.16 as well as the surrounding verses in order to help us capture what the full idea of the text is, which is really not about us at all. It's about Jesus and how he does the work of salvation. 
so that we can have eternal life. So as we come to this text, I want to look at three points. The extent of salvation, the extent of his salvation, the judgment of darkness, and on the reverse of that, the reward of the light. So let's look together at the text, John 3, 16-21. Let's stand together in honor of the reading of God's word. John 3, starting at verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, But whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their words were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true, comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Amen. This is God's word. Be seated. So just just to remind us and take us back backwards a little bit, remember John is talking to Nicodemus at this time. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He's come to him in the middle of the night, and they're talking. And Nicodemus has asked questions of Jesus. Well, he really didn't ask a question. Jesus just kind of posed something to him. And that position caused Nicodemus to ask questions about being born again. What does that mean? And how can these things be? And Jesus reminds him that it's the work of the Spirit alone that saves man. And so he just got through talking about as Moses was lifted up, Or as Moses lifted the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And now Jesus is going to expound upon that, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life, by the following statement. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So let's look at this passage. For God so loved the world, If you look at this passage in the original language, the word so, that we've just said this a lot, and I I think we need need to understand what we're saying. I think the literal text would actually be read better, for in this manner God loved the world. This is the manner in which he loved the world. It doesn't really change the meaning any, so I'm not like giving you some amazing insight from the Greek or anything here. But it does help us to kind of draw out the word so a little bit that has probably lost a lot of its meaning in the English language. And this is the manner in which he loved the world. What about the world? What is the world? Well, think about it. What is falling? The world fell. All of creation. Not only man, not only man fell in his sin, but the entire world fell. As you read Genesis chapter 3, what's going on? Jesus, or the God, Jesus there in the garden is passing down judgment. 
to the snake, to Adam and Eve. And what is he telling them? It's not going to be easy to farm anymore. It's not going to be easy to raise, raise children anymore. The world is no longer going to be easily subdued by you, man, because the world is fallen. And why did everything fall? Because of the sin of man. That's why it fell. And so what has to be fixed in order that the world might be saved? The sin of man. This is why Jesus comes. This passage offers us, then, a way for men to find salvation. And so then the natural question is, next, who is this salvation for? Because the text answers us specifically. Who is this salvation but for? And I think for some, they want to look back at the word world and interpret the word world, which is cosmos in the Greek, which can mean lots of things. They want to interpret this as every person who has ever lived. And what's the problem with that? Every person who's ever lived has not been saved. And so there's a real problem there. He gave his only son. This is how men are saved. The world is not the target of that. The world gets the benefits of that salvation, just like the world got the curse of the sin. But who gets saved? Let's keep looking. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Whoever believes in him is the target of this salvation. And the literal Greek there is all the believing ones should not perish, but have everlasting life. And if you think about this, this matches the previous section with the interaction between Nicodemus and Jesus. He's still talking to Nicodemus here, so he hasn't like shifted into a new way of thinking all of a sudden. He's still talking about how everyone must be born again, but not everyone will be born again. The Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in Him will have eternal life. Everyone who believes in Him will have eternal life. And so the question is, how does one believe? And that takes us back to the passage that we looked at last week. I'll look at it again this week. Go to John chapter 1. Verses 12 and 13. How does one believe? But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Who were born, there's that born again, not of blood, so not because they were Jewish, not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, because the flesh can only produce bad. Not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, because what is man's will outside of God's interaction? To only do good, only ever continually, is what Genesis 6-5 says. But whose will is it that man believe? But of God. This is how that belief happens. But of God. So, being born again, belief is 100% the work of the Spirit of God. Through the atoning act of Jesus Christ, all because 
the Father who sent Jesus is drawing them. The Trinitarian work here, salvation of his people. So who is saved? The one who believes. How is he or she saved? By the work of God alone, not by the will of man. The redemption of man. What happens as what happens because of the redemption of man then? Everything. What does Jesus say? Behold, I am making everything new. Making new all things. And what does the church get to do? We are his redemptive agents here on earth. We are his ambassadors is what he calls us. And we are these redemptive agents of the world to go into the world to see his kingdom go forward into the world being made new. There's no one or there's no way that one can come to a universalist conclusion here that everyone is saved. There's no way that all men and women are saved. And there's no way that you can come to the conclusion that God really doesn't require anything. He just loves us all equally because he loved because he is loved because it is obviously or it is obvious that belief is required. No one can please God without faith. And how is that faith received? From God alone. So what do we do with this? For me, it's this singular understanding of the gospel as a 19-year-old kid that freed me up more than anything. When I came to this understanding of Scripture, that God is 100% at work to save me, and he did all the work, and he delivered me, and it was his idea, that freed me up more than anything. Because when I finally saw Christ's atoning work and the extent that it's taught in Scripture, all of Scripture, it made my assurance of salvation, something that I'd never had before, it made the assurance of my salvation go through the roof. God loves me, and he was on purpose you know, his, in his efforts to acquire me. And all three persons of the Trinity work together that I might believe. That's pretty incredible. I didn't have to be convinced. Therefore, my doubts that I have currently are inconsequential to my belief and to my continued sustaining belief in Jesus Christ. I have doubts, but since I didn't have to be convinced on the front end, since he just caused me to believe, those doubts are inconsequential. That's freedom. I didn't have to be persuaded. Therefore, he continues to hold sway over my heart, even when I want to walk away. I didn't have to earn it. Therefore, I can't lose it. It's been satisfied by something that is completely beyond my ability. These facts, brothers and sisters, these facts should free us up to live as we ought to live. We can't drift away from the one who purchased us from darkness to eternal life. So, let us live as we ought to, in light of the mercy that we've been shown. And for those times when we, when we don't want to bask in the goodness of his mercy, in the goodness of his grace... His salvation works anyway. His salvation is effective anyway during those times. And that's good news to us. 
we can have assurance that goes through the roof, as it were. We don't have to worry about our standing with him because he did all the work and he continues to work on our behalf. And I'll say this, it also helped my evangelistic efforts because I no longer relied on my own skill as an evangelist or my own skill as an apologist to woo the believer to our side of things. I, I didn't have to be incredibly convincing because really I wasn't as a young believer. I was loud and obnoxious. I wasn't convincing at all. I was annoying. But it was God alone who did the wooing. And that was a comforting thought to me as someone who just was mean about it. And it's comforting now to know that there are those out there still, even now, right now, in Murray, Kentucky, that he intends to call to himself. And so what should that spur us on to do? Go out, find them, talk to them, share the gospel. So let's keep moving through this text. Let's look now at the judgment of the darkness. Because he gives this, this other side of the coin. Well, whoever does not believe is condemned. And what is the charge? Not believing in the name of the only begotten Son of God, Jesus Christ. In other places in Scripture, we read that there is no other name under heaven by which man can be saved. So essentially, the unbeliever in their unbelief, is choosing then to believe in another name to save them, which is likely his or her own name. And this is the judgment. There is no ambiguity here. Jesus just goes on and says, so this is the judgment. Consider Nicodemus hearing this as a supposed man of God who has done everything in his own power in order to save himself, but is still ultimately believing in whose name in order to save himself. He's believing in the name of Nicodemus to save himself. And light has come into the world, is what Jesus says. This is the judgment, that light has come into the world, and that people love the darkness rather than the light. Because their works were evil. Just turn on the TV. And you see this in action. People love the darkness. And just when you think that things can't get any more detestable, that they can't get any worse than they are, they do. We live in a world where life is considered optional. Promises are made to be broken. When promises are broken, people are just like, well, you know, that just happened. The individual is king, and they make themselves king of their own individual make-believe world. I mean, consider that. People love the darkness. When the light turns on, it, it, it makes me think of, like, you know, going into, like, an old shed or something that's old and run down, and you turn the light on, and all the mice and rodents and bugs scurry to the, the corners of the room. Why do they do that? Because everyone who is wicked hates the light. And they do not come to the light because they, their works will be exposed. 
the world hides in the in the darkness because in the light their ugliness is exposed. In the light, there is absolutely no hope for the darkness. In the light, the darkness stands condemned. And so what is this primary characteristic of unbelief? This desire to hide in the darkness. This desire, like Nicodemus, to believe in another name. This is more dark, or a name that is more dark and more sinister, if you think about it. Believing in your own name, in the name of Jesus. Any name but his. Jesus' name becomes a curse word to the unbeliever. And that's why Jesus calls the unbeliever children of the devil. Because the darkness is his realm. And in eternal matters, you're either for Jesus or you're for the enemy. There's no sort of fence riding that we can do when it comes to these eternal matters. Nicodemus was put to the test here. You're believing in your own name, Nicodemus. You can't ride on the fence of your own works because they're not going to save you. So what should we do? Now, I think it stands for a reminder for us about the things that are in the darkness. They mimic unbelief. Anything that's in the darkness is just a picture of unbelief. The Christian's life is to be lived in the light. A church's life is to be lived in the light. Anything that's secret is usually in dark places, and it's usually bad. We are called to transparency as Christians, as individuals, as a body of believers. I mean, just consider it. On yourself. Consider the way that you think about people, the way that you think about organizations. What do you desire most? And what is one of the most attractive things to you? Even though we hate it in our own lives, we love authenticity. Someone who is transparent is real attractive to us because we know who they are. They're not hiding anything. There's no concealed anything with them. It's attractive. Authenticity is incredibly attractive particularly to a lost world who scurries to the darkness and thinks everything is out to hurt them. But we need that also inside the church. We need authenticity inside the church. We are free to be authentic. We are free to be transparent because we live in the light, brothers and sisters. That's a really good thing. And I think for the unbeliever, the exhortation here is real simple. Come to the light. Believe in the name of Jesus Christ. Because only he can cast away the darkness. There is no amount of good outside of Jesus that can ever push away darkness. That can ever push away the darkness, the misery of sin and death. It's going to follow you everywhere. It's going to be in everything that you do. You can't possibly live in the light outside of belief in the name of Jesus Christ. So call upon his name. That you, the Bible assures you, that if you call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. So I want to move next then to the reward that is in the light. 
He says there in verse 21, Whoever does what is true. What does this mean? Whoever does what is true. Well, the way the scripture suggests that no one outside of the direct intervention of God himself can do what is good and true. So how does this happen? John Calvin, quoting Augustine, says, To acknowledge, what does this mean to to do what is good? To acknowledge that we are miserable and destitute of all power of doing good on our own. And there's truth to that. And coming to the light is representative of coming to Jesus after our confession and belief in him, both for the first time and each subsequent time that we come to him. It's impossible to truly come to Jesus Christ without a correct acknowledgement of your sin, without a correct acknowledgement of correct acknowledgement of your unworthiness without him, without his merit as your Savior. And so what is the reward for coming to life? We get to clearly see that our works are carried out in God. That everything that we do has a basis in His goodness, not our own. That's a good thing. We also get to experience life in which we will not perish. Sure, we will die physically. Because all men, due to the curse of sin, must die. However, what is Jesus doing to the curse? He is undoing the curse. So, whereas we would once be doomed to surely die in Adam. Remember, he says, you will surely die. Now we are meant to live. And what did Jesus say? Remember, from John chapter 10. I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. He's coming to undo the curse. Because belief in him means that we will not perish, but we will have eternal life. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Belief in him, you are not condemned. You're not condemned on this earth, even though you might try to condemn yourself, even though you might receive condemnation from others, you are not condemned. Jesus says so right here. He's the creator of all things. You should trust in his word when he says that. And we have no condemnation. We have eternal life. And it has nothing to do with our own works. It has nothing to do with this, this our own faith that we've somehow drummed up on our own and is easily washed away. But it has to do with the faith that God himself has given us with his good works. And we have no condemnation because of that. So consider Nicodemus at this point. Because it just goes on, verse 22, it's, we get this new story. It doesn't really tell us what Nicodemus did until later. But you know he's cut to the heart. And later we read about him when he, along with Joseph of Arimathea, arranged for the burial of Jesus. Why would Nicodemus do that? Because apparently... Nicodemus was converted, and the gospel finally sank into his heart, and he believed in the name of Jesus Christ rather than the name of Nicodemus. 
So in conclusion, now go back and think about that discussion I had with that man at first base sometimes. And he's not wrong. John 3.16 does tell us a lot, and it tells us what we need to know. True. However, the rest of Scripture echoes these truths as well. That we are lost without the saving mercy and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, the question for us then, is why wouldn't we want to read more about that? Not just from John, but from every biblical writer. It's those times when we think, yes, indeed, I am condemned. Whether it's myself, I'm condemning myself for the, for the bad that I believe that I am, for someone else condemning me, whatever it is, isn't it great to have the entire book here to remind us that Jesus is good, that he's the one that did the work, that he's the one that makes it true still every day? Why wouldn't we want to read more about that? And I think that this verse and its surrounding passages is a great way for us to introduce the truth of God's Word. Because it is a verse that everyone has heard of. And it's a verse that has been thrown out to the wind, so to speak, for everyone to kind of believe their own way. And so what is great about it is you can come to this and you can say, no, this is the truth of this verse that only those who believe in the name of Jesus Christ will be saved. And you can do that. You can believe in the name of Jesus Christ and be saved. So let us remember that as we go about our lives, that the gospel of Jesus Christ, it frees us up to live as we ought to live. And it frees us even when we don't live as we ought to live. And it frees us to share the truth of the world that's living in darkness, that scatters when the light is shown. Because with the truth, we are able to shine the light into the darkness of the world and into the lives of the people that we meet. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help with this. Lord Jesus, as we consider your words, Help us to live as we ought to live. We have been freed up from any weight of requirement other than belief in you, which you have taken care of. That's incredible. You have paid every requirement, and you have taken care of all of it. So we are free to live as we ought to. And we are free also to tell others about the only way to cast off the weight of sin and death that the world would apply. So, Lord, help us to do that as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.